spirit of sovereignty. We ask for those again kind to illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God. And to you we give glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever and in the ages of ages. Amen. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. And the Apostles of Son of Peter. Starting 10 minutes late, and we got to cover three chapters. That does not bode well, so we're getting through about half a chapter for Baxter. Uh, let me give you a little, a little caveat here. I got stung by a crazy bee that like, dive bombed my head and stung me right here last night. And I'm kind of allergic to bees and I'm still recovering from it. So I got hives all over my body and all that stuff. So I don't think my mind is quite what it's supposed to be. Unfortunately. I tried to write a bulletin column this morning. It took me four hours to get three quarters of a page in. So uh, we'll do the best we can and see what happens. Uh, and this is our last Bible study for Gospel of John. We get through the book of science. It's okay. Get through to chapter nine. It gets to a nice stopping point. The reason I'm going to go on is because. It's 4th of July, next Wednesday. Not that I have any particular, uh, you know, adherence to 4th of July, but um, uh, nobody else is going to show up, right? I'd be happy to be here, but you, know, you guys aren't going to be here. So, and then after that, my brother starts his series, and then we got the Rome one, and we got, so it's too much. So, we'll just stop, do Book of Signs. It gets us a good, I think, a good uh, flavor of the Gospel of John, and then in about a year now, we'll do it again. I promise we'll get through it. I promise. Uh, you've got your new uh, midsummer uh, calendar back there, yes? You can have that. After 4th of July... Defending the faith, biblical apologetics. What is this? Uh, my brother's saying is in town, and we're going to look at some a, a few of the interesting topics that divide Catholics and Protestants, and we're going to use the Bible as our foundation to see why it is that the Catholic Church teaches what it teaches, and where those things are found in the Scriptures. There'll be plenty of time to ask questions and all that good stuff. So um, there you go. I highly recommend that. And, uh, and Jennifer can highly recommend it too, right? Yeah, it's all right. It's awesome. Yeah, okay. And then also the founding of Rome um, is something I would recommend. This guy just came back to town. He's a friend of mine. He just moved back into the area. And um, he's extremely bright. He's the only one to have graduated from Christian College with a 4.0 in the 25 years it's been around. And um, um, he's also getting his doctorate. He's 24 years old. And it's, and it's all the dissertations. So, you know, one of those kind of guys. But he's also very exciting. So I think he's going to be very interesting to learn from and, uh, and all that good stuff. And he's going to talk about, what's that? The founding of Rome. And what I mean by the founding of Rome is simply God's preparation for the establishment of a Christian society. So how was it that Greece and Egypt and all of these ancient civilizations were really prepared by God to bring forth salvation, to, to make way for the coming of the Messiah. So I really recommend that. One of our areas of weakness has been in history. We haven't done a lot of history stuff. 
And so hopefully this will start the beginning of bringing in a little more history. And uh, especially as we head forward into the Christian era and head out into um, the medieval days and things like that. Okay? Oh, one more thing, and that is my brother's teaching at NDGS at Notre Dame Graduate School. The things are back there. Tomorrow is the first class. You can still go and sign up. So there's, he's doing Gospel of John. He's also doing Book of Revelation. He's doing Book of Revelation in Alexandria. So you can sign up for that and take that class if you want. Okay, any questions? Yes. Where's the St. Peter? The fraternity of St. Peter is in Nebraska. The fraternity of St. Peter, which celebrates the Tridentine Mass. They're training priests to celebrate the old Mass, and they're great, like jam packed with vocations and whatever. So he teaches there. Um, all right, chapter seven. We leave behind this chapter six with some things we learned there, and in chapter seven, verse one. After this, the after the teaching on the Eucharist in chapter 6. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Okay, it's the second time we're hearing that the Jews are seeking to kill Christ. Okay, and It's falling right upon his teaching on the Eucharist. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Annie, you want to read that for us? Verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. No one works in secret if he wants to be known publicly. If you do these things, manifest yourself to the world. For his brothers did not believe in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but the time is always right for you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify to it that its works are evil. Do they really believe that he's actually able to work 
miracles and signs and no. Okay, so they really have no faith in them, not even on the level of science. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now okay. I would say people who were at like the last area. Yeah, I yeah, we want to read this totally in context. So we, we're working from all the way from chapter 5. Remember with the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, right? And they want to make him king. They want to go and anoint him, right? And then they go follow him across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And they find him on the other side. And remember the problem with him there. They, he says, look, you don't even... In fact, go back to that chapter 6. Because it's probably helpful for us. Chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered, answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So these are guys that still have the same problem, right? That the guys are murmuring behind the scenes in John chapter 6 at his teaching on the Eucharist. And here uh, they're called his brethren, okay? And they have no faith in him. So this, it looks like they're apparently the ones that are back in chapter 6 that saw the multiplication of loaves and fishes, and yet they didn't even really see the miracle in it. Okay, they ate their fill of the loaves and were following him because he fed them. Okay? If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Okay, and what's the world in the Gospel of John? Yeah, the world is in darkness, it is in sin, and what else is wrong with the world? Okay, if it's in darkness, and the darkness what? It does not comprehend him. It does not know him. You remember? He came into his own, and his own received, received him not. Right? And he came into the world, and the world did not know him. Okay, actually those two are flipped. Okay? For even his brother did not believe him. Verse 8. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its works are evil. Go to the feast yourselves. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So saying, he remained in Galilee. But after his brethren had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay. So, Jesus says, I'm not going up, and then he goes up. Okay, how are we to make sense? Now. What's that? We're in chapter seven. In chapter seven, yeah. You know, in the wedding in Cana, he says to his mother, too, my time is not yet come. Yes. And then, but immediately turns around and uh, performs a miracle. Okay, all right. And in that, in that situation, remember, even in the text, there was some difficulty in understanding it. Yes. Okay, and similarly here, first of all, as followers of Christ, we want to chalk Jesus up to not knowing what he's doing. Okay. Uh, or being confused or changing his mind or lying, even worse, right? So what's what's going on? He's not going up to the teacher. He's going up to secret. Okay, good. Notice, how do they make go up? And he says no. How do they want him to go up to Jerusalem? As a miracle worker. As a miracle worker. And what else? Yeah, to declare himself to be what? To be the king, exactly. And he says, I'm not going up. And I'm not going to show myself to the world like you want to show want me to show myself to the world. Right? Their perception of the world is something fundamentally different than Jesus' perception of the world. Okay? Um, Carson sums this up pretty nice. He says, He 
says, verse 7 simultaneously explains why Jesus will not rise to the challenge set to him in verse 4, and why for the brothers any time is right. Their alignment with the world means they know nothing of God's agenda. They do not listen to his word, do not recognize it when it comes, and cannot perceive the word incarnate before them. They are divorced from God's divine appointments, or his divine times, and so any time will do. Okay? So our Lord is, is basically saying, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do right now. I'm not going to declare myself as you want me to declare myself. And I'm not going to go up and do what you want me to do. For I'm going to go up to Jerusalem at the right time, at the appointed time, at God's appointed time. And when he gets goes up to Jerusalem and is enthroned there as a king, he will not be enthroned as they desire him to be enthroned, but he will be enthroned upon the cross. Okay? So there's two different times and two different worlds going on in John here. One perceived by his brethren and one perceived by him. Okay? He now will then go up to Jerusalem, not the way they want him to do it, okay? but in his own way and in his own time. Okay, verse. Uh, let's start with verse 10 again, Annie, and go from there. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he himself also went up, not openly, but as it were, in secret. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was considerable murmuring about him in the crowds. Some said, He is a good man, while others said, No, on the contrary, he misleads the crowd. Still, no one spoke openly about him because they were afraid of the Jews. When the feast was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. The Jews were amazed and said, How does he know scripture without having studied? Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but it is from the one who sent me. Whoever chooses to do his will shall know whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But whoever seeks the glory of the one who sent him is truthful, and there is no wrong in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. What are you, why are you trying to kill me? The crowd answered, You are possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I performed one work, and all of you are amazed because of it. What was that work you performed? In the case of healing. What healing? What healing? There's a number of signs that have taken place, but our Lord has now gone back to Jerusalem for the first time since chapter 5. Okay? The, exactly, the healing of the blind man. You remember, or the healing of the paralytic. Okay, you remember the healing of the paralytic is the first time that we found out explicitly in John that the Jews were seeking to kill Christ. And here we come back to that story. Okay, so keep reading, Annie. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but rather from the patriarchs. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man can receive circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a whole person well on the Sabbath? Stop judging by appearances, but judge justly. So some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem said, Is he not the one they are trying to kill? And look, he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Could the authorities have realized that he is the Messiah? But we, but we know where he 
in that text we just read. But yeah, they do, first of all, they don't have a, they don't have an idea where, where he's from. Okay, they think they know where he's from. Okay, but eventually it's going to be shown that they don't even know on an earthly sense of where he's from. Okay, shortly in the text. Okay. Another point that we have to bring up, and, and you know, go back and look at this text a little closer, is this uh, this uh, focus upon the king. Okay, this is now the second time in John where this where the text is really focused upon the Christ. Is it possible that he is the Christ? Is it possible that he is the king? Okay. And in this text in chapter 7, it's now it's really kind of on both ends of the text. His brethren want him to go, want him to go up and declare himself to be king. He said, now is the time. Go up to Jerusalem and declare yourself. Okay? And again, it, at the feast, they're talking about who is he? Is it possibly he's the king or not? Okay? There's something in the text we've left out that's going to help us in this. Okay, whenever you're reading the scriptures, first of all, just like with the Samaritan one, what do we have to know about what's going on? There's some contextual information that helps us. Okay? What is it in this text that we've ignored? Circumcision. Alright, there's the circumcision point. Yeah, but that's more of a conversation within what's going on. Okay? What about the context of the scene as a whole? Good, the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, with John chapter 6, what do we have to have as our background? The Passover, right? And eventually the manna, and all of that that comes with it. Similarly, whenever you come upon a feast of the Gospel of John, or in any of the Gospels, that is the background in which our Lord is working. Okay? And you got to know what's going on. So what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Celebration of the coming king. Alright, why do you say that? Okay, any other thoughts? It's also the Feast of Booths, right? Yeah, Feast of Tabernacles and Feast of Booths are the same thing. Okay, so what happens at this feast? What is the background of this feast? Turn to Leviticus. Go back to Leviticus 23. Marianne's got a cheat sheet in her Bible. I've been meaning to tell you guys, by the way, you know, maybe a few months ago I was incessant upon it, kind of gave up on it, but make notes in your Bible, because there's nothing wrong with that. I see all you guys making notes. Don't worry about making, you know, put a little thing in your Bible, you know, turn to this or whatever. Leviticus 23, verse 33. Because we get the first mention of, of the Feast of Tabernacles and the law about it. Jennifer, are you there? Uh, I am aware. 23. 23. Come on. Now. I am. And the Lord said to Moses, Do you want me to read Yes, go ahead. And the Lord said to Moses, This is why you pick up people in the back. Yeah, because we got your pocket here. Yes, Leviticus. Sorry, Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe the day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets. A holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, and you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, On the tenth day of this, of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. And Are you in verse 33? Where am I? Chapter 23, verse 33. 
they take water up to the altar in the tower in the uh, 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 in the temple. Thank you. This is beasting coming in. <laughs> in the temple, and they pour out the water upon the altar and let it flow down onto the ground. Okay. In this procession, they also carry what they call leafy bows or bows or bows, whatever. They take these branches, okay, myrtle branches, all the same branches they built these huts with, okay, myrtle branches and palm branches and and olive branches and what else did they mention, okay? They take all these branches and they wave them, okay, as they go in procession, okay? And myrtle branches, okay? In one hand, they hold this big bow or bow, what is it, a bow or a bow? About, thank you. About the branches, and they wave it in the air, okay? They go in procession with this water in one hand, and in the other hand, they take a piece of fruit. A lemon, actually, is what they traditionally use. A piece of citrus fruit, okay? And they process like this, okay? Up to the temple, and they pour out this water from the well at Shiloh upon the altar, okay? Another rite or practice that they do is in the court of the women. I'm not right, court of the women. But they set up huge uh, lights or uh, torches, actually. Big, huge golden torches in the court of the women in the temple. And it would light up Jerusalem for the entire seven days of the feast. The entire city of Jerusalem would be lit up. And the accounts of it are that there would be no night. It would be like daylight for seven days in Jerusalem, okay? It also, over time, took on what Annie was pointing to, uh, whether this was originally part of the feast or not, it took on uh, the aspect of the kingly installation, the installation of the king, okay? What do you call that? The coronation of the king, thank you. Beasting again. Yeah. You guys just walked, whoever just walked in. I got stung on this, I'm a little bit, uh, my head's not quite there. <laughs> Anyways, um, that's an excuse this time. <laughs> why, was it, why was this feast used as, as the annual feast of the royal installation? It was a feast originally of the ingathering, okay, of all the produce of the land. Now, if you were the king and you wanted to be remembered as the king on a particular day, when would you choose? Would it be in the middle of winter? No. no. It would be when everything was good, right? Everybody's happy. All the produce is gathered in and there's feasting in it, okay? And so it was used probably both as an annual feast of royal installation, okay? It was the day to remember, the feast to remember the king that was reigning, but also it was the feast that was used probably when the king was first installed, no matter what time of year it was, it was this feast that was celebrated, okay? To sell it, to, to anoint the king and, and whatever, declare, declare him king. Along with this procession and the installation of the king, a particular psalm was used by the Jews for this feast. That psalm, anybody know? 118. Psalm 118. If you're using your duet rings, it's 117, right? 
What about the leafy branches that they carry as signs of what? The tree of life. The tree of life and, the, and all of the trees of paradise and the fruit that they held in their hand. The fruit of the tree of life. Okay? Um, and the lights which enlightened the world is the light of God himself which shines forth upon paradise. Okay? So all these associations with the Feast of Tabernacles was there for the Jews. Turn to Zechariah real quick. It's just before Maccabees. Or this, well, just before Malachi and just before then Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. This is Zechariah's prophecy of the coming age, the when the Messiah comes. Zechariah chapter 14. There's something in particular that something Zechariah picks up on here on this idea of the kingly installation. What's true about the king of, of the Jews at the time of Zechariah? When's Zechariah writing? General time period. Okay, after what event? After the Babylonian captivity, right? And what did not return after the Babylonian captivity? Well, a few things didn't return, but what in particular? Well, the ark, but also in this regard, the king. Where was the king? Where was the son of David? Okay. And so who, what do you think the Jews started to do with this royal feast of installation, this annual feast of royal installation? They started to associate who with being the king? The king's son. What's that? Which is who? James Who is the real king? God is the royal king. The, the true king. The real king. Okay? And so look at in Zechariah chapter uh, 13. Zechariah chapter, no, I'm sorry, 14. 14, sorry. Zechariah 14, verse 8. On that day, remember, on that day, the day when God asked, on that day, the day of the Messiah, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Okay? The river of life flowing forth from Jerusalem. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In verse 16. Then everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of foods. Okay? So this, this association with the king and God, okay, and this annual feast that all of the world will come to. Okay, now no longer the Jews, but all of the world will come to him. Turn and find it at 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city, and they tore down the altars which had been built in the public square by the foreigners, and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then 
then striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years, and they burned incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of the presence. And verse 6, and they celebrated it for eight days, they, they celebrated the cleansing of the temple for eight days, in the manner of the Feast of Booths. Okay? Well, let's, let's keep going because it's even more de details. They had been one, uh, remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore, bearing ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palms, they offered hymns of thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. What verse are you reading? Verse 7. Therefore, bearing ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palms, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. Okay, and they decreed by public ordinance and vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. What feast did that become? No. No. They celebrate like the Feast of Booths. Hanukkah. Okay, this is the Feast of Hanukkah that's celebrated every year by the Jews. Okay? And it's celebrated in the manner of, of the Feast of Booths. Yeah, Jennifer. Going back up to verse 3, and they spread it to the well, they were just, they were restoring the holy place. They were just making everything right. And when they did that, they celebrated the feast this, to commemorate this cleansing, okay, in the manner of the Feast of Booths. Why would they celebrate the cleansing of the temple in the manner of the Feast of Booths? Why would they choose that particular feast for the cleansing of the temple? What is it about the temple? Whose whose place is it? Who dwells there? Yeah, it's the throne house of God. And if God is going to be king and they cleanse the temple, it would make sense. They would celebrate a feast according to the royal installation. Okay? Alright. You guys are saying, what does that have to do with everything we need to talk about? And we're almost out of time. Go ahead. No question with, uh, with regard to Zechariah 14, mm -hmm. prophecy or whatever that was uh -huh. given there. Um, was that seen as fulfilled any time in, in their time or uh, only <coughs> very much in the future of eschatology? I think they were looking for it to be fulfilled. Okay, And that's, that's the point of going back to these texts, that the Jews are waiting for God to send the Messiah. Okay, and when he does send the Messiah, they will celebrate the Feast of Booths. Okay? It's extremely important because now back in John in chapter 7, here we are, standing in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the annual feast of the royal installation. And what do his brethren say? Get up to Jerusalem. Go now and show yourself. Right? And up at the feast, what does the text tell us? What's the conversation? What's the conversation going on? What are they asking about it? Go back to John, chapter 7. Yeah, go, read it. Chapter 7, verse 11. The Jews therefore sought him on the festival day and said, Where is he? And then I remember, some say he's good, and some say he's good. Yeah, and then the conversation continues where? In what verse? Verse 25, chapter 7, verse 25. John 7, 25. Yeah. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet we know where this man comes from. Okay, so there's this whole argument going on behind the scenes based upon what the Jews are celebrating. Because when they're celebrating, just like when we celebrate Christmas, right? We have all this background coming in for us. Same with the Jews. When they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, they're awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And that day comes when the, when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem to be enthroned. And everything will be made right again. Okay? So, let's keep reading because we're just way behind. We don't need to go back and call it one. Verse 27. Um, go ahead, Annie. But we know where he is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. So Jesus cried out in the temple area as he was teaching and said, You know me and also know where I am from. Yet I did not come on my own, but the one who sent me, whom you do not know, is true. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd began to believe in him and said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man has done? Okay, so is this good? There's still on a level of signs. Okay, they're still struggling to figure out who he is. We gotta say one more thing. I, I should have said it earlier about that uh, the, the uh, chapter five of circumcision. Okay, because it, it comes up here in the next story. Back to verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. What, are they, what is our Lord? Why is he saying that they're not keeping the law? What aspect of the law are they not keeping? No, they're allowed to circumcise on the Sabbath. That's the importance. Okay, that is the one thing they are allowed to do on the Sabbath. Okay. Now, yeah, but there's something in particular in the text that they are not following the Mosaic law. You shall not kill. What are they seeking to do? Read the next sentence. You know you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Okay? And then you gotta have a little humor with the next with the following couple verses. The people say, You have a demon! Who seeks to kill you? Okay? Again, later on they, they accuse him of being a Samaritan. Did they use the word murder or kill? The old text. In Greek? I don't know. Thanks, murder. But well, this is, that's the idea that's coming forth here. They're seeking to kill our Lord. They're, they're seeking to murder him, okay, without a trial. And that's going to come, that's gonna come uh, forth for us. Notice what he says. Moses gave you, in verse um, 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man upon the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge by right judgment. Okay, in other words, don't judge upon what your eyes are telling you, right? upon your natural judgment. Don't rely upon the flesh, but rely upon what I am telling you, upon a true judgment, which is a judgment of the Spirit. Okay? Why does he bring up circumcision in relationship to the to the man who he healed, to the paralytic? Does this have to do with purity? Purity to purity? Yeah, kind of. 
Okay, first of all, what does he do? He heals the man on the Sabbath, right? He says, look, you're allowed to do circumcision on the Sabbath. And I healed a man on the Sabbath. If you do circumcision on the Sabbath, it only makes sense that I would be able to heal a man on the Sabbath. Why? Exactly. Circumcision is the covenant which God declares with Abraham, right? Bringing him back to a relationship with God. Okay? So if circumcision is meant to heal a man, and here Jesus Christ comes on the Sabbath and raises a man up, allows him to walk again. You can go back and look at in, uh, in Genesis chapter 18, I believe, about circumcision. But in that text, God says, walk before me. Okay, and then he gives him the covenant of circumcision. And so here Christ raises a man and allows him to physically walk before him. And the Jews do not see in that miracle the truth about what circumcision was all about. Okay? For them, they are judging based upon what they're seeing. Okay? And they're misjudging who Christ is and what he's doing. The Sabbath itself is all about that covenant relationship of God and man joined together. Okay? So here God comes to man and heals him and makes him walk before him. Okay? Let's keep going to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd that's muttering about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Verse 33. Okay. Yeah. So Jesus said, I will Okay, they really don't know where he's from. Okay? 
So again, these guys are just, they're going to, as we continue to read in this text and throughout the rest of the gospel, they're just going to be shown to be more and more ignorant about Christ. Okay, they're almost going to be shown to be foolish. Okay, go ahead, Annie. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them even wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the guards went to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why did you not bring him? The guards answered, never before has anyone spoken like this one. So the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Okay, stop. Have they? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Good. Read the next verse. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is a curse. Nicodemus, one of their members, who had come to him earlier, said to them, Does our law condemn a person before it hears him and finds out what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee. Are you? You are not from Galilee also, are you? Look and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. <laughs> okay, so, all right, so there's a couple things to say about that, but first of all, um, they, the officers send these men, okay, verse 46, the officers answered, no man has ever spoken like this, and the Pharisees answered them, are you led astray also? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who does not know the law are accursed. What crowd is he talking about? Who are these people that they, they're talking about? They're men that have come up to the feast, right? What type of guys are these? They're Jews. Okay? And who are the Jews to be taught by? The Pharisees. And so they, in a sense, they accuse themselves, right? This crowd is accursed. It does not know the law. If the crowd doesn't know the law, it's the Pharisees' fault for not teaching it to them. Okay? Further, Nicodemus stands up, right? Nicodemus is the one that has come from darkness. Remember, he stood before the light. And in a sense, he faded into the background in our text. Remember, and we concluded by just saying about Nicodemus, he came and stood there, and he listened. And that is what is necessary. And so a transformation began to take place in him in chapter 3 of John. And finally, here in chapter 7, he comes back to the scene, and he comes in defense of our Lord, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you also from Galilee? Okay. So what's, what's he saying? Does our law do what? Do we kill a man without what? Yeah, without giving him a proper trial. Can we accuse this man without trying him first? Can we murder this man without him being guilty? Okay. So these are men in the background that now have a, have a practice laid out in John of men who call someone to trial. Or not even call them to trial. They convict somebody of a sin without giving them proper trial first. They're murderers. Okay, yeah. If the law of Moses forbade the Jews to kill, was it common practice then that those people that they did not like or who committed a crime were handed over to the Romans? Or was it just the case with Jesus? Ah, well, okay, we'll get, that's an interesting question that binds a couple things together. We're going to get to a text right here where Jesus has to make a decision, right? Okay, the next. The Jews would have, would have traditionally tried somebody and they would put them to death if they were guilty. Yeah. 
Okay, but you're right. When they're when they're living under the Romans, something is different. Okay, they have to involve the Romans. We're gonna get that in this next text. We gotta cover. So let's do it right now. Okay, and we're gonna finish with verse 23. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. What day is this? What day is this? Oh yeah, it is the Sabbath. But what day in, in relation to what's been going on? We just had the feast, right? Well, they just had the great day, right? On verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, okay? So they just had the last day of the feast. Our Lord declares himself to be the source of living water, okay? From which the whole garden is, is fed. And then in chapter 8, Jesus goes out early in the morning. So it's the day following the feast. Okay, the Jews are still all around. All these people that came up for the feast are probably still all around. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Why would we have a charge to bring against him? No. What law? Well, if she's guilty, the law of Moses says that she ought to be stoned. So they're thinking either he will stone her or he won't stone her. No, there's something a little bit more deep in there. First of all, the Jews, according to Roman law, were not allowed to put anyone to death. Okay? But according to Mosaic law, if someone was found guilty, they were to put the person to death. What's going on in here? When they hear it, that's a good point. That gets into another issue we've got to look at in a second here. But first of all, they, what they're doing to our Lord is they're trying to put him into a situation where he can't win. Because if he says, turn her over, don't stone her, and turn her over to the Romans, he breaks what? And he can't be the Messiah. Okay? If he says, stone her, then he's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary. Who's going to kill him? The Romans. Okay? So they're trying to get him into this situation where he can't get out. Okay? Further, what kind of men are these? Yeah, but what kind of, what, yes they are, but what kind of men are they? What do they do? They're obsessed with cleanliness. Yeah, but, okay, but right here in the gospel, what do we know about them? What's that? Without a trial. And Nicodemus has just called them to the floor on that. Okay? And with that as a background, suddenly we have a woman brought before our Lord. Okay? And they say, This woman's guilty. And notice we haven't heard anything about a trial. Okay? And in fact, there is a way to have a trial. Okay? There is a way to try an adulterous woman. However, this gets into far speculation. Okay, as far as what's going on in the text. Because it is in this text that our Lord leans down to the ground and writes in the ground, in the dirt. And how many times have you heard different interpretations of that text? Alright, nobody knows what he wrote. 
okay? But everybody talks about what he wrote. Have you heard this, Jennifer? No. I mean, everybody says, look, he wrote down what he, give me an interpretation. He wrote their sins on the ground. What else? What else? That's the most common one. When he wrote, he wrote their names on the ground, each one of them. Okay, uh, he wrote the name of the man she had had relations with, which was a guy standing there. There's a hundred different interpretations of the text. Okay, I will give you yet another. <laughs> However, we are five minutes over. And Norman needs to leave, don't you? Okay. Mon, can you hand me that those paper right there? What's that? Oh. You know, I'm saying oftentimes from the pulpit or in other books, we do hear all sorts of different interpretations of this text. Okay? I myself interpret it anyways. How did they the sins of all the accusers? Sins of the have you heard that? Yeah, the sins of the accusers. What's going on? 
the practice among the Jews was that they would take the water, I think it was from the well at Shiloh, I'm pretty sure, and they would mix with it some of this dirt or sand on the floor of the temple, okay, and make the woman drink of this water. And when she drank of it, her sin would be exposed and that her body would burst forth, okay, and they would kill her. If she was clean and not guilty, then nothing would happen to her. Okay, it was called the, the, the water of ordeal or the water of bitterness. Okay, now, let me bring in one other thing from the Gospel of John. These Jews bring this woman to Jesus and say, what should we do with her? Okay, being Jews, if she was guilty, what should they have done with her? They should have stoned her if she was guilty. If they had tried her and she was guilty, okay, they should have stoned her. But they didn't do it. Right? They followed rather the law of the Romans. And from a Jewish perspective, if I yoke myself to the Romans, or I yoke myself to any other nation, okay, oftentimes in the scriptures, the Jews, when they do that, being the bride of God, are considered what? Yeah, slaves, but also adulterers. They have turned aside from the one God and followed a false God. Okay? Followed another nation. Now, turn to Saint Ephraim. Now, the first of this section, this stuff is a little bit heavy duty, but as we go through it, it gets a little easier. He's writing, Saint Ephraim always writes in poetic verses, so the, the translation tries to catch some of that. But Israel crucified our Lord on the plea that verily he was seducing us from the one God, but they themselves used constantly to wander away from the one God through their many idols. Well, then they imagine they crucify him who seduces them from the one God. They are found to be led away by him from all idols to the one God. To the end that because they did not voluntarily learn of him that he is God, they might by compulsion learn of him that he is God. When the good which had accrued to them through him should accuse them concerning the evil which their hands had done. Thus, even though the tongue of the oppressors denied, yet the help with which they were con helped convicted them. By grace, for grace loaded them beyond their power, so that they should be ashamed, while laden with your blessings, to deny your person. And also, thou had mercy on those whose lives had been made food for dead idols. For the one path which they made in the desert pastured on their lives as on grass in the desert. For that idolatry which they had stolen and brought out in their hearts from Egypt, he's talking about the golden calf, when it was made manifest, slew openly those in whom it was dwelling secretly. For it was like fire concealed in wood, which when it is gendered from within, burns it. For Moses ground to powder the calf and caused them to drink it in the water of ordeal. What's he saying? When Moses found the golden calf, what did he tell him to do? Not 
destroy it. Grind it up and pour it into the river and make all of Israel go down and drink from it. Okay? St. Ephraim parallels the water of ordeal in the temple with what the Jews did out there in the desert. Okay? That by drinking of the calf, all those who were living in its worship might die. For the sons of Levi ran upon them, those who ran to help Moses, and girded on their swords. For the sons of Levi did not know whom they should slay, because those that worshipped were mingled with those that worshipped not. But he for whom it was easy to distinguish, distinguished those who were defiled from those who were not defiled, so that the innocent might give thanks that their innocence had not passed unseen by the just one, and the guilty might be convicted that their offense had not escaped the eyes of the judge. But the sons of Levi were the, were the open avengers. Accordingly, Moses set a mark upon the offenders that it might be easy to avenge, for the avengers to avenge. For the draught of the calf entered those in whom the love of the calf was dwelling, and displayed in them a manifest sign, that the drawn sword might rush upon them. The congregation, therefore, which had committed fornication in the worship of the calf, he caused to drink of the water of ordeal, that the mark of the adulteress might appear in it. From hence was derived the law about women, Numbers 5, which we read, that they should drink the water of ordeal, that by the mark that came on the adulteresses, notice what he says, the congregation might be reminded of its fornication that was in the worship of the calf, and be on its guard with fear against another fornication, and remember the former fornication with penitence of soul, and that when they were judging their women, if they played the harlot against him, they might condemn themselves who were playing the harlot against their God. Okay? Do you understand what he's saying? That when they gave the woman the water of ordeal, of, of trial, they would be reminded to stay true to one God. And if they had not been true, they would convict themselves in the very trying of the woman they were trying to convict. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that Jesus' drawing in the sand was supposed to remind them of their own sins because it was symbolizing the sand that the priests would ordinarily have taken from the temple to mix with the water. Well, so what, okay, so what happens? They bring her and say, what should we do? And he's, what does he do? And what should they have done? They should have tried her. Right? And in the background, and in the background of this whole thing is the reality of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? They had just poured the water upon the altar. They had just performed all of these rites. And he bends down to the dust of the temple and moves it around. The very dust that they should have taken and mixed with the water. And in that, they were reminded of the very fornication they were entering into with the Romans. Okay? And what did they do? They left them. Okay? All right. That's a, what a way to end Gospel of John Bible study. Anyways, I promise you, we'll do Gospel of John again like in a year and a half, and we'll get through the whole text. And I apologize for not getting through it all this time. But I appreciate you guys coming. And uh, not next Tuesday, but the following Tuesday.
my brother will be here. And trust me, let your friends know that it's going to be a really good series, I promise. Okay? Alright, let's go through the prayer. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. 